0: There's no one that's female. I mean, why in the hell would I think that I can be successful?
1: Women are not making it to the top of any profession. So it's a very
0: male-dominated environment. We do exist in this society where women in
1: entertainment are discarded. There are women over 40 making pop music, but you won't hear them on commercial radio.
0: And this is why conversation between women and music has never been more important. Hi, and welcome to Control, the podcast where we speak to incredibly inspiring women working in the music industry. I'm Chelsea Wilson, your host, and in this episode, I'm speaking to one of Australia's most influential figures in music, business owner, activist, and industry leader, Helen Marku. Nearly 30 years ago, Helen, with her partner, Quincy McLean, established Bakehouse Studios, a much-loved rehearsal, recording, and event space in Melbourne, that has been a home to many artists such as Paul Kelly, the Avalanches and the Go-Betweens and is a studio of choice for touring acts such as Elvis Costello, Cat Power, Billy Bragg, John Cale and many more. In 2010, Helen co-founded SLAM, the Save Live Australia's music organisation. SLAM led over 20,000 people down the streets of Melbourne to protest against new laws that were crippling live music venues and artists, forever now in history as the largest cultural rally ever seen in Australia. The rally was a turning point for music, resulting in political and regulatory changes that protected music, arts and cultural venues from residential developments and further closures and changed government's relationship to the music industry. In 2015, Helen was a key member of the Victorian Government's Sexual Assault and Harassment of Women in Licensed Venues Task Force, aiming to eradicate and prevent sexual assault and harassment through policy and education. In 2017, Helen was inducted into the Victorian Honour Roll of Women, and in 2019, along with her partner Quincy, was recognised with an Order of Australia for her significant services to music. Here in Melbourne, we have spent the last 18 months or so going in and out of lockdown due to the COVID-19 pandemic. The interview I'm sharing with you today was recorded in between lockdowns when we just started re-emerging, not realising that soon we'd be plunged back into another long stretch of social isolation in this conversation helen shares her thoughts on covid recovery how to make change in the music industry the me too movement and what was happening in the lead up to the slam rally this is helen marku in control <laughs> helen marku thank you so much for joining me how have you been going through this physical isolation in victoria
1: Um, I think uh, it was very well described by Julia Robinson recently described it as social atrophy. That's what we're all feeling now, this sort of social decay. And um, I described my first outing recently as I felt like a naked worm that was coming out of a cocoon. As you know, Chelsea, we've just opened in Victoria and we've had pretty close to nine months of just being shut down and bakeouts being a creative studio a venue an event space etc we shut down very early we had cancellations way back early in March we were that barometer of when South by Southwest went and then there was just this domino effect and originally it was there was just so much fear involved and running on adrenaline and trying to maintain as a small business person, particularly in the creative sector, um, my role within it fell completely on all the organisational stuff. So dealing with legals, landlords, organising job seeker, job keeper, uh, job maker, job breaker, mm-hmm. the whole lot. You know, that that was my full-time role, renegotiating Leases and mortgages, and dealing with mental health with staff and ourselves, and just trying to keep semblance. And look, I didn't have a day off for months and months and months. This was from the first thing in the morning till late at night, doom scrolling in the middle of the night. And then we opened, as you know, we all reopened, and it was with a lot of trepidation over that period. And we saw that if someone had an elderly family member or a band member that was immunocompromised, that band were out for the whole year at Bakehouse. And then I think we discussed this a little earlier. We felt that the virus was kind of lapping around our heels within our community and industry as people started Mm. to get closer and closer. So the lockdown came at a good time. Um, I think the most difficult thing for us is that our outgoings have continued. We, we rent physical space. We have leases and, and debt and mortgages. So a lot of uh, savings or anything we had set towards the future has been taken up. So it hasn't allowed us a buffer to take many hits at this point. So the big telltale for us will be next year whether we renegotiate our rent again, in a more realistic fashion with the new creative economy, however that looks, and moving forward with our staff as well, how that will look, who will stay, who will go. I described it like musical chairs at the beginning of the mm. pandemic with JobKeeper because in our creative setting, most of our staff have two or three jobs and they're all artists within their own right So they fell into certain positions where they could get JobKeeper, whether it was with us or their university or one of our staff worked for the MSO, et cetera. So we found ourselves in this really unenviable position of having all male staff at Bakehouse for the first time in 30 years, because they're the core group that have been maintained on JobKeeper, but that will be, you know, of course, remedied in the near future, but For myself, it was the adrenaline that led to exhaustion and now I'm just, it's really, I'm taking stock and just taking things really slowly because the mad rush to open two weeks ago was the storm before the calm and then the bookings are trickling through. It's a very slow incremental thing which has allowed us a bit of time to just go, hang on a minute, we're just not going to go crazy we're going to just take things one step at a time because health, (laughs) our own mental health and my own, you know, living on adrenaline for so long, I'd hate to have a kidney X-ray right now and see what that looks like. (laughs) It's just been such a wild
0: time for everybody in so many different ways. And also, I think a period of deep reflection for so many people. Speaking of reflections, I'd love to reflect back on the SLAM rally. It's been over 10 years Mm. since this huge event, which you co-organized, the largest cultural rally in Australia. For listeners who might not be aware of SLAM or weren't around at the time, can you just talk us through what was happening in the lead up to that event and what kind of inspired and galvanised
1: you? Well, it was an election year and around elections um, uh, there was a law and order campaign running. It was the the then incumbent government were a Labor government who were friends of the arts and music as well. And uh, they were coming up to a third term. And historically in Victoria, I don't think a Labor government has ever hit a fourth term. So it's a very difficult time, and there was a lot of, particularly in the Murdoch press, were were brutal about you know um, alcohol fueled violence in the streets. So the then premier Brumby put out a directive to sue McClellan, the director of liquor licensing, who are a statutory body. They're not part of government. so the directive was slow down the alcohol fueled violence cut down the 3 a.m. licences. So what she went ahead and did was use a, this sort of blunt instrument and banged it out with a, a blanket ruling around 3 a.m. licences, but also any live music venues. She They pulled out an old condition that had existed from the 80s but was had never really been enforced over the time. Any live music venues that had a 3 a.m. licence were immediately considered high risk. Now, that may not sound like much, but in real terms, it meant that they had to have all this extra compliance. For example, have two bouncers on before, during, and to the end of every single gig. So if you imagine a tiny little folk venue with a ukulele player in the corner like the Lomond for example, um, that rendered that sort of gig untenable because it was was too expensive to pay for security. Also CCTV had to be put in, installed in every live music venue, as well as high-risk conditions meant tripling or plus of insurance and we started to see this real attrition of gigs. So over a six-month period, it's been noted that 126 venues either reduced their live music program or cancelled it altogether. And in effect, it had this opposite thing rather than curbing alcohol-fueled violence. when They got mm. rid of the live music they were putting in badge drinking nights and happy hours and things like that. The first venue to receive these high-risk conditions was the Railway Hotel in North Carlton, which is a non poppa type of Italian eatery where the old men play cards out the front who are still probably there. grandma in the kitchen. Brunswick Blue Shooters that had something like a 12-year residency that play on the floor to, you know, old couples and grandchildren drinking Chardonnay. And the publican came out and shut it down. And that's where Anne O'Rourke, who was a human rights lawyer, got involved and she reinvigorated Fair Go for live music. John Perring of the Tote and Bar Open Fame and Spanish Club at the time uh, was the convener of that group and they had started around March 2005 around neighbourhood issues, but this was huge. and. The reason SLAM became involved is we were watching closely. We were watching Fairgo to see if they'd had any results from government. Nothing had happened. And then the tote shut down. And we, we didn't know Bruce Milne very well at the time. But we really admired what he had done, bringing in that sort of international connection to the tote, you know, with his connections in Japan and Chicago and the, the gorgeous Tiki Bar upstairs and always full of young musicians. And it was the place where people began, Wednesday night residency, Saturday afternoons in the front bar. And although the tote became the poster child because of the movie Persecution Blues Battle for the tote, it actually wasn't the catalyst. It was places like the Railway Hotel. The Greek Deli had to stop their bouzouki players in the restaurant because it became wow. untenable for them. The Cape Lounge, a little jazz residency that Andy Sugg had for years and years, he lost his gig. So it was happening in the regions. It was happening everywhere. And um, my crazy husband got up in the middle of the night and said, we can help. You know, we should do something about this. Realistically, it was never really about live music venues as much as the principle that the government had created this proxy that music created violence. Music equals violence. And we felt we had a moral obligation to break that proxy because it's not true and it's not real. At the Nucleus were artists losing their gigs, but the vehicle was live music venues at the time and we had to make sure that these regulatory barriers were out of the way and the ridiculous prospect that music equaled violence had to be corrected. So we came in, we came in off the back, decided to hold a rally and brought in our close connections. Now, after years at Bakehouse, at that stage it was 20 years, we're up to 30 years now, we knew a lot of artists and a lot of musicians And we were just talking to people about how about we just take over the streets and make some noise and and challenge the government on this. So Quincy and I went in very naively, as um, never worked in government, never had a liquor license as well, didn't understand the intricacies, uh, had never run a campaign like this, had done fundraising for school and, and put on gigs, but never anything like this, and... I think the most important thing we did was listen and listen to experts and listen to our community and not assume that we could do it ourselves or had the knowledge or authority to pull something like this off. And listening to experts and having them surround us is what helped the success, even though A lot of the work was strategic from our point of view. There was a leadership role there, but it came through being informed by those around us. And so we went to the government with demands. There was a petition, a hard copy petition at the time, where we had 26,000 signatures, very different from the digital world. These were being collected on site at the rally and at venues And the demands, there were 10 demands and they were all signed off by 2014. And one of them was the funding of Music Victoria, which was then, which you're on the board of, Chelsea, and at the time it had a steering committee and there was an appetite to start them off, but this kick-started the funding and things like, of course, breaking the proxy of music equaling violence, creating a help desk around live music venues, things like bringing back all-ages gigs and changing the building code, just a whole raft of demands, including uh, extra funding, and that's where Music Works kicked off um, $27.5 million for Victorian artists in the music sector, and um, that was unprecedented as well. So a number of firsts, but we were to celebrate 10 years since we marched down Burke Street to Parliament in March this year and then pandemic hit. So our, our celebrations and uh, commemorations were put on hold as we, we hit another crisis for our music community. Did
0: you think at the time that you'd get such a big turnout for the rally? No way. Were you
1: surprised? Yeah, because we hadn't really dealt with social media before. And at the time, we were lucky because the algorithms favoured whatever you put up there. And it was interesting when Quincy was meeting with the government, they'd say, how many people you're expecting? Because I don't know, four or 5,000. I don't know how this Facebook thing works. And you could see the numbers rising. And I know the... On the event page it got up to about 15,000 just before and that's when the government knew we were serious. But I think they also realised we were serious when they asked who we had speaking. And I think when Quincy mentioned Paul Kelly was one of the speakers, they all put their heads in their hands and went, oh, no, and um, knew that this was it was serious and particularly with all the media that we had. At one stage... There were three full-time publicists. Ange Henley was doing all the indie media and digital. Uh, Michelle Vreeman was involved with the newspapers and television. And uh, Beck Duke was doing a lot of the online stuff. And we had saturation. We just had so much press around this, this issue because it was an election year. The other thing that was interesting too, and I reflect on it now, after doing another similar campaign in New South Wales last year, the Don't Kill Live Music campaign, which we used our logo, et cetera, is that, remember, we're up with a Labor government, against a Labor government. So, the you know, the uh, mechanisms that form the Murdoch press were, of course, ready to go a Labor government at any time. So you could leverage on that. Whereas it was a complete opposite thing that happened up in New South Wales, trying to get coverage around something that was going up against an LNP government during an election as well. Just incredible, an incredible moment for
0: music in Australia and in particular, of course, here in Melbourne. And the Live Music
1: Accord was signed on the eve of the protest. Is that right? Look, that was just an agreement to agree, really. Uh, I think it was more of a press moment, to be quite honest. It wasn't until 11 months later we actually signed the live music agreement and that's where the the real changes came into play. But then the government fell and here we are, new government. And um, we were very tricky and fortunate at the time that we had a a militant uh, webmaster, Boric Gradman, that, had put in um, a bit of nasty stuff about the LNP on the SLAM uh, website the night before the election and we were very careful. We tried to remain nonpartisan as much as we possibly could, because it was really important that live music is community owned. It's not owned by any political party, even though many of them have tried to take it up as their cause. It's a generational art form that we all embrace and it can't be partisan. But he kind of slipped through and Quincy and I were away. It was our 25th wedding anniversary and we were down at the Queenscliff Music Festival and we had really bad reception. And he put on there, LNP have no live music policy, vote last. So I get a phone call from Michael O'Brien at the time, who is now the leader of the opposition, saying, what have you put on your website? And I'm like, what? I don't know. What have we put? You said vote liberal last. You need to take that out. And I said, well, where's your commitment? You don't have a policy. Bang, a policy went up that night saying that they would commit (laughs) to the live music roundtable and they would commit. There are about three things on there. A roundtable was really important. One of them was something around Rocker Steadford's wow. some funding, which was just interesting. But anyway, that was there. There was something else. I can't remember around arts funding. So Boric took these great screenshots, and when the Libs got in, you know, I got straight on the phone to um, <laughs> Heidi Victoria, who became the arts minister, I remember, the week after, saying, you've committed to this. your website and she just couldn't believe that that had happened. So they stuck to it and the first roundtable with that government was with Michael O'Brien. So I'll explain a bit about the roundtable. It was a, a vehicle that had the different silos of government and government agencies and music industry and we were able to talk through these regulatory problems and that's when the age and change came through and make really quick changes and these will be long-lasting. So 10 years on from this, our
0: music venues are once again under threat and our artists have been severely impacted due to the coronavirus pandemic. What do you think the next steps are for the industry to recover and how can the public play a part?
1: Oh, the next steps are really complex because we're we're stepping into uh, uncharted waters and the most overused word of the pandemic has been uncertainty, as we all know. Um, (laughs) And so I think it's really interesting looking across to those who are just that one step ahead of us, for example, New Zealand, or even look at the Northern Territory. They're already having, you know, huge stadium shows and things are opening up. I think we're very fortunate in Victoria that we, despite the vitriol coming in from other other states and the media and the pressure we were feeling, we stuck it out as a community and we really cared about each other. And that will play a big part moving forward. And I think we'll rebuild very quickly, but it will be different It's going to be very hard for traditional music venues because business models will have to change. They have to change because it is no longer viable to have the kind of volume that we were looking at of audiences in small spaces. That will change for a long time. And, you know, looking at outdoors and looking at food and beverage and seating and these different types of experiences as well. I've got grave concerns about models moving forward. It's I feel that incumbency also brings complacency. So we're seeing one thing that I want to see change is that some venues have had all-male lineups and all that work that we did in the background for so long has not has been really disappointing to see what happens because they're going with what they believe is safe and what will sell tickets. Interesting looking at New South Wales, they put on these 1,000 shows with government funding, but they were all heritage acts. They were established acts. So I have concerns about emerging artists and the role of the Support Act and when we're looking at reduced times of people are doing matinee shows and lots of short runs, they're cutting out the support artist. I'm also concerned about the cut of loss of expertise. Mm. You know, we have great promoters and booking agents and people that are support teams that create our ecosystem and how they're being cut out. And we're losing a lot of that expertise. So... Moving forward in a time where all the money is concentrated coming from government, there's not a lot of external money coming in. There's not this, this mass entrepreneurial effort of, of risk-taking and bringing in money from other areas. It's coming from government. So government have an absolute huge responsibility to make sure that they support the ecosystem and not just parts of it through their
0: funding. In your work advocating for the music industry and and working with politicians and and public officers, it's quite challenging if they have a real lack of understanding about the music industry. How do you go about talking to government and politicians who don't really understand the music industry? How do you go about translating those needs when there is this perception about sex, drugs and rock and roll? How can we overcome that image?
1: Um, Well, it's really important to have a diversity of voices talking to government. And sometimes, you know, they invite me into stuff because uh, maybe they think I cut through. I don't know what it is. I'm not. I'm not a um, a, a typical rocker, let's say. I think that you know, um, being an older Greek mum might be a little bit different from what they're used to or their expectations or their, the stereotypical <laughs> live music fan. Um, I think it's really important that the different voices are there to be heard. And that leadership has happened a lot in the broader arts community. But sometimes I, I do worry about the loudest voices in music and the media have a role to play as to who they're taking quotes from and who they're championing all the time. They go to their trusted sources and we have to make space for the reality of our industry because if you look at the artists that are cutting through, you know, they're not white male rockers. In fact, you know, the, the women of colour are owning music at the moment when it comes to the charts, women like, you know, Samper the Great, for example, and, and just... Uh, the fact that she's won the Australian Music Prize two years running, the travesty that her acceptance speech wasn't even televised at the Arias last year, for example. So the gatekeepers, the positions of power need to make space, but not so they're unseated. They need to collaborate and that's what will work for them in the long term as well because holding on to power gripping onto it with tiny bits of fingernails will not help you as an individual as well. So I'm very conscious of being a white settler and the space I take up. If I'm ever invited to join a board, for example, or to speak on a panel, I do a check and I say, "This, you don't need another middle-aged white woman on here. Where's the First Nations voice first? And, you know, <laughs> where's the justice within everyone else? So I think there's a big individual responsibility that comes in as well as collective responsibility and this is the time, if ever we've needed change, this is the time we can make change because we've been shaken up like never before.
0: And what's your advice for other women that want to see change but they don't know about how to approach
1: making a difference? Collective and and seek feedback from your community. I'm I'm the biggest doubter myself. You know, I always have these these fears of uh, you know classic imposter syndrome constantly. But it's really important to have my small groups of like minded other women generally. Um, or other groups of, you know, like gender-diverse groups or people like yourself that just talk things through and get feedback from your peers and collectivising, as I said. Go in as a group. And I'm seeing that happen a lot with various art forms as well and a lot of groups that have sprung up and get involved that's a really important thing. So stuff like the Australian Festivals Association is really important. They've had a lot of great action, like Julia Robinson and Emily Collins got together and did that I Lost My Gig. They were quick and they acted at the start of the pandemic. This is just two women together. And they were able to gather that data. And that's been used to inform some of the policy and the funding. But the work that julia's done in that group and if you see other festivals joining on things like have sprung up the almbc the australian live music business council so if you're a woman in business in music even as a micro business joining these sort of groups are really useful but also your little facebook groups just those little private threads are so important if you don't have that physical connection with, you know, family and friends and people that you can bounce off as well. They often blame confidence in the
0: music industry as the reason for women's lack of participation. Do you think there is a concern around confidence and how do you find your confidence to speak out?
1: I am probably have a weird feeling no filter sometimes and it came from being a loud Greek girl growing up in a big household that um, we were encouraged to just be loud and speak and I think a lot of my confidence came from building Bakehouse with Quincy was really interesting because we did that independently and we made our own rules about the environment we wanted to be in so it was a little bubble I must say, but we recruited who we wanted. We had certain respectful rules. When it came to stepping out, as I became older, it was easier. It was definitely easier to speak out and speak with confidence and with experience. And as I gathered knowledge, but Confidence is difficult when you have people speaking over you, turning your back to you, walking up to a group of men who introduce each other and you're on the periphery. And I found that the most important thing I did was Mm -hmm. turn up, just turn up. And when I felt tired and I didn't want to, I'd be invited into certain things as I got older and had this voice and had a seat at the table and I realised if I didn't show up, there would be a typical man taking my place. And and I, that responsibility was very deep with me and it still is. And if I can't now show up to things, I try to offer a place to another woman or someone else that I'm bringing up from a, a socially underrepresented community. So... Turning up is number one. The experience, the more you do it, the more confidence you will build. I'm very, very lucky that I have a long-term working relationship with my partner of 34 years who has been incredibly encouraging of everything I do and believed in me and has made space for me and supports me and has never, like, we argue, (laughs) we question each other, but it's a very equitable relationship. And that came out of, I think, the relationship I had before him and he had before me is we both realised what we didn't want in a relationship. Um, So coming into this long-term thing, and, and we are rare, it's incredibly rare to have something like that, but if you can't get that sort of equitable support from a partner or a parent or a friend, again, join groups, go out further into your community because there will be people that will hold you and prop you up and tell you that you are on the right track because we need that reinforcement. Because sometimes you're just flying blind, particularly when you're breaking new ground in an advocacy or activist space. I read an interview where you were talking
0: about how in the music industry that often musicians are generating income for so many others who are providing the ancillary services. So say, for example, an artist is making a record, they're paying studio hire, they're paying the producers, they're paying website designers, graphic designers, Mm. all these other people are are making an income off the creativity of that artist who is likely to not receive any income at all for that, that project. How do you think we can go about changing this and making sure we look after our artists, particularly coming out of COVID?
1: Well, we often talk about the centrality of the artists, don't we? And um, when we look at the way the ecosystem works, if you remove the artists, the ecosystem will no longer exist. So somehow we need to look at equity. Um, Sometimes it's just a value proposition. It may not be money for some people. However, we all need to live and survive. So I think in everything we do, the first thing you need to do is say, who is getting paid here and who am I supporting? And again, it starts with the individual right up to broader organisations. If you are employing someone or contracting someone or putting someone on a lineup do not have the expectation that people want to give their music away for free and don't undervalue what you do. And it comes back to even the work we're doing with studios. Once we start undervaluing what we do, it sets a precedent for the rest of the industry as well. So at Bakehouse, for example, if we take it into an abstract way, away from an artist, we do a lot of location stuff because we put a lot of time and effort into the Aesthetic, like above and beyond. We build these beautiful spaces ready to film. And people will often question, say, well, I went into the pub and didn't pay a location fee. But we have to be firm. If we still charge a location fee because that is us um, acknowledging our value and maintaining that value, it sets a precedent for the rest of the industry. And that's where artists have to recognise their own value as well. There are times when you give it away for free, you might do a benefit, but don't do too many benefits. And that's where good management comes in. So as we start to step out on the layers of of people that support artists in their, their pursuit of their art or business, they will know and they will filter this stuff and they'll be careful with your career to make sure that you're not doing too many benefits or you're not doing, you know, there has to be a correct balance with everything you do. And I'm also really concerned about a lot of the online content at the moment. There was a time that it was really important at the start of the pandemic. People wanted to create. A lot of people wanted to get their stuff out there and have a connection with their audiences. But it's time to do content not just for content's sake. We have to be able to monetize that and look at, you know, um, a good example is the digital concert series, the Melbourne Digital Concert Series at the Athenaeum where the artists all get a really good cut of what's happening. And I think these are the the um, the models that we need to be moving into. And, as I said, government are holding a lot of the money. They have to put it into Every part of criteria, value system, acquittals, et cetera, is how we pay artists.
0: I'd really love to chat to you about your work on the Victorian Sexual Harassment Task Force. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about what the task
1: force uncovered? So it was interesting at the time I was ready to step down from SLAM. I just, you know, my kids were needing me going through high school. I'd been absent for quite some time and I became involved with Listen just on the periphery and it was when it was just a little Facebook group before it became, uh, you know, bona fide, not-for-profit, running conferences and labels and all the things they do now. And when Evelyn Morris started it and the the stories were very uh, reminiscent of my own experiences growing up. As a woman in in uh, going to gigs and um, in the early days, and I was so deeply disappointed to know that not only was this still going on, it was probably even getting worse. Or it, it was it was palpable how terrible the situation was. And the other thing that really hit me was I just spent at that time like six years championing live music venues as safe spaces, and there was this glaring omission. Perhaps that's not somewhere you'd get beaten up, but you would certainly, sexual harassment, assault and even rapes were coming out of our, our beloved scene. It was an awful realisation. So I felt a, a moral responsibility to do something about it and also a duty of care to the artists because remember the artists were in their workplaces. They don't have the same workplace protections that other businesses are afforded, they're micro-businesses, and many of these artists had stories about getting harassed by bar owners or staff, and um, we had a duty of care to know that they could go to work with safety and dignity. So I used my then position, because now, this is six years later, I'm on the roundtable, I have influence. So I wrote to the then uh, Minister for Justice Jane Garrett. Unwaveringly, she said, "Have a task force." So I, I got together with Dr. Bianca Philiburn and a small working group. Katie Pearson from Listen, Lucy Rybosch from the Revolver Group, Megan, a, a security guard, and we we formed some policy, uh, created a pilot program around training and work with Bryony Benny from the Good Night Out campaign in the UK. And, and basically, there was an awareness campaign, a post campaign, there was a training program that's been adapted in some forms, but a lot of that, the findings have not quite been tabled yet, I'm sorry to say. However, the awareness was really important around that time. And people like Dr. Philiburn went on to do further studies and pilots around festivals and have written a number of safety protocols working with venues and festivals. And so we've seen a shift. It wasn't the huge cultural shift that I wanted to see, the big behavioural change that everyone would do the same training program and have the tools to deal with the behaviours that they were seeing, However, uh, Me Too came after this, remember. So there was a big push around that time of getting stories out and and actioning things. So I feel that a lot of the venues and people in our industry as well are good as citizens. They want safe spaces. So a lot of them have self-imposed changes within and protocols and then there was another campaign called the Your Choice Campaign that was taken up that was started by Stacey Piggott. Uh, she's a publicist out of New South Wales and taken up by a lot of festivals and the art centre run a lot of uh, run that program throughout the My Music Bowl season, for example. And there's been others, and they'll continue as well. But I do feel there has been a shift. In attitude from that first moment to where we are now, you know, it's it's six years later. Do you think, broadly speaking, Me Too's made a genuine impact in the music industry? A lot of people say it hasn't, but I feel it has. Whether it was the first round or the most recent round we've had, where a group formed post the pandemic, uh, which created around a photographer and around a a manager out of Brisbane as well, and that came together of women just sharing stories. And a lot of them were unaware of the stuff that had happened just a couple of years beforehand, but they needed this camaraderie. They needed a space to share their stories and tell their stories. And I know there's been some real failures around the Me No More campaigns and, uh, some of the the good intentions that came out of a lot of these campaigns uh, without the skill set. Um, so the the intention of Tracy Spicer's group, for example, was to triage these stories as they came in and, and send them off to the right places and collect money to do that. But that never eventuated because it was just too big for women with good intentions. And that's where we have to be really careful because there are great groups out there that run support services and and are ready to act. And getting behind places like CASA, for example, would be more beneficial in the long run than trying to reinvent things over and over again, whether they're, you know, codes of conduct or protocols or all these things that prop up from time to time. We can take individual responsibility as I keep mentioning but it's when we come together and that's when we make real change. Bakehouse Studios is an iconic
0: and much loved studio space in Melbourne. Can you go back to the beginning and just tell us a little bit about
1: the story of Bakehouse? Because it's a funny place. Um, Quincy and I were living overseas. His band Blue Ruin in the 80s were touring and living in England. We came back and he'd always had his old rehearsal places that, Uh, He could never pay the rent on. I remember they'd always get evicted because they couldn't come up with the $2 per week per band member at the time. But anyway, he was looking for a space and Bakehouse in North Fitzroy came up. It was the old Silkwood Studios and before then York Street Studios. And now it's probably one of the longest existing recording studios in Victoria. So it was somewhere for his band to set up and I remember looking at the Bookings book, which is now 30 years old. In the first year you'd see stuff like uh, the Triffids, the Go-Betweens, Dirty Three and then moving on the year after and bands like the Avalanches doing pre-production for that first album and bands like Frente and just... This beautiful who's who of sort of Melbourne music at the time, and we still have the North Fitzroy Studios, and uh, it's uh, leased out to Swimming Pool Studios now, which is Harvey Sutherland and Jackie Winter, and there's some little labels there. But uh, North Richmond had been around for a long time as well. They were it was the early Stable Sound Studios. In the 80s. Before then, it was a squat, and, and the kids in the Catholic school all thought it was haunted for years. Um, there's lots of old stories. And before <laughs> then, it was an old carriage house and a, and a warehouse. And so, lots of really interesting, a labyrinth of old stuff that you discover in the building. And again, that started slowly and with no money and Quincy hates me telling this story, but junk picked up off the side of the road, a lot of repurposed, reloved, very slow sort of uh, incubation of the space and then we kind of created our own little oasis there with this garden made up of cuttings and we have a $25 rule. You're not allowed to spend more than that on anything in the garden and it's probably less now. But, you know, this beautiful open air is and these eclectic rooms where in 2014 we invited a whole lot of visual artists to come in and do these wild permanent installations in the space, um, which we're redoing, 2020 art project as well. We run a public art program out the front and we have tiny little spaces where you get kids coming in for their first ever jam to huge spaces where international touring artists come in. Um, I think Elvis Costello said they were the best rooms in the world he'd ever been to and uh, we've had some glorious moments there with some of our Iconic and most favorite artists. So, you know, even the Rolling Stones were booked in the night before they canceled Hanging Rock. So uh, they did cancel in the end, but, you know, to have bands like that flirt with us is a big vote of approval. Have you had any kind of
0: starstruck moments? I know you've had artists like Paul Kelly and Tina Arena and Nick Cave
1: and so many people using the space. I used to, but I don't anymore. (laughs) John Cale was the real moment, you know, founding member of the Velvet Underground, and he was just beautiful. And that was a really special moment for Quincy and I. And what was really great for us is that he came in, with all this chartered music, walked into the space. I remember we'd filled it with flowers. We are so excited he was coming and put our gorgeous Bakehouse touches in there and I think I even baked cakes or biscuits and lovely cups of tea and they threw it out. He he just felt so inspired and creative that they all started jamming and spent extra time in the studio and, and just said it was such a creative energy that... It was it just it was a real buzz, and for us that was really reaffirming of what we'd done. Um, there was another moment one day. Oh, Cat Power coming in. Yep, I was a little starstruck, so I took her flowers, which I always do. And Kim Deal, <laughs> when the Pixies were in town, I took her flowers, having. Uh, Uh, Auntie Ruby and Uncle Archie come in with all the grandkids, hanging out with my kids in the early days, just playing in the courtyard with some really treasured memories for me. But a funny little moment, I walked upstairs one day and I wasn't expecting this person to be there. And Billy Bragg was sitting there talking to um, Brian Nankervis And this is so out of character. I just went up and hugged him, and I never do that. I'm very respectful of artists and their stuff, but I've been (laughs) following him on Twitter and I really follow a lot of his political writings, whatever, and I went, Billy, how great to see you, and I just gave him this big hug and he went, oh, hi, and thank God Brian didn't say I was some crazy lady that had just come up the stairs. But um, that was, yeah, really out of character for me, but a really enjoyable moment too.
0: In terms of being a businesswoman, I think I read the other day that less than 30% of businesses in Australia, of any industry, are owned by women, but I think it's a lot less in the music industry. How do you think we can encourage more women to step into business management and being business owners?
1: Yeah. And that's where having support is really important because when we look at even that level of Uh, promoters, for example, generally have some financial backing or support behind them. So it is very difficult if you don't come from privilege and money to step into business. However, creating your collectives, creating your groups, starting up little artist-run spaces like ours. We had no money. We probably still don't. But back at the time, just, um, you know, taking a punt renting a little space and creating our environment of what we wanted to do so I think opportunities are probably better now because you can have a startup you can crowdfund before you go into business you can test out ideas on your friends and and I feel it's important that don't wait don't wait to be invited into that record company or don't wait for too long in that job that you're not happy in. And pandemic has opened up opportunities. You know, there, there will be a great leveller out there where it, it, it's been very beneficial for some and not for others, but um, use this moment to reflect on what you can do with other people to create that vision of that future and whether it's business or art or whatever you want to do. So you're an activist, you're a business
0: owner, you're also a mum and a partner. How do you balance all of these
1: things? Is there any Helen time? Um, I I make it occasionally and I think my time is when I see my girlfriends and get together and um, that's actually what I wanted when I came out of pandemic. Although I adore my partner and get a lot of great reinforcement from him and You know, kids can be needy. They're just like little baby birds that you're feeding all the time and the pleasure is in watching them grow up. Uh, But my girlfriends, I wanted to step out and just have that moment where we talk shit and drink cocktails and spend five minutes commenting on each other's hair or something as mundane as that because (laughs) that's what builds me up, you know, just putting on your lipstick to see the people that you know will not judge you and they will, they're will they there just to make you feel better about yourself. And these are the moments that really matter for me. And, of course, you know, taking time to enjoy. Look, I do a lot of cooking and I have a lot of people around my table. I'm Greek and so that's, you know, culturally I'm an overfeeder and I give out a lot. But bringing back in, um, I, I'm not good at that sometimes I, I do suffer burnout and I do have anxiety and I don't sleep at night and menopause was hell for me if, you, if anyone wants any tips, just hit me up. And so uh, it, it is through other people that that I get that nourishment and through my community and and through friendship. Well, we're so
0: fortunate to have you in our community. Thank you so much, Helen, for all the work you do and for
1: taking the time to chat with me. Oh, Chelsea, it's such a pleasure looking at your face across this podcast. People can't see that we're actually seeing each other right now, but it's it's just been wonderful and thank you. That was Helen Marku in
0: Control. I really loved our conversation and I hope you got a lot out of it too. Especially in these times, we can feel so powerless and disconnected. Hearing Helen talk about finding communities and creating movements made me feel really inspired to look at how I can use my voice to promote positive change. Thanks for tuning in to Control. I've been really thrilled with the feedback on our first nine episodes. Please subscribe for future releases. And if you can, please write a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps others find the podcast. And please get in touch via Instagram or Facebook. I'd love to hear from you. This episode was produced and edited by me, Chelsea Wilson. I'd like to pay my respects to the traditional owners of the lands I am recording on, the people of the Kulin Nations. Until next time, be kind.